Hello everyone, I'm Steve Woodfield. I'm Associate Professor at Kingston University and my role is as a researcher into higher education and my specialist area is on internationalisation. Um, and over the period of the last 13 years or so I've been undertaking a number of studies in this broad territory. And it's particularly interesting to come today to, to think about employability and internationalisation because it's a theme in a lot of the studies that I've done. But often the two agendas between employability and internationalisation don't necessarily come together. So it's good today to come here and have a space to kind of discuss these issues and to try and bring together, particularly, I'm going to, going to talk mainly, I'm now talking about in the next slide, that I want to talk about three recent projects that I've done, which all of which have um, an empirical dimension and a kind of um, literature review desk research dimension, which try to understand different ideas of mobility, that's mobility of UK students going overseas, but also international students coming to the UK, and also transnational education as well. <coughs> um, but first I want to sort of frame what I'm doing in terms of what do I mean by employability, employment skills, graduate attributes, all the stuff that would be familiar to you, you know, as um, experts in this area and practitioners and, and in the network. But nonetheless, I think it provides some really important context to, to what I then, then talk about in terms of the research, because it's important to understand what we were thinking about when we were looking at these issues um, in these research projects. And I should say that those research projects, they were broader than employability, um, as um, Anne-Marie has talked about in the, um, the Going International piece. But within there, there was a very strong um, theme or core of questions or focus around employability, which I've tried to bring out um, in this presentation. So bear in mind that what I present is, is a small piece of a large project. But I thought it was interesting to see what we could dig out um, from those studies. And of course, it's important. I mean, Anne-Marie also talked about again about the, um, the European context. It is important. Um, the Bologna process focuses on mobility as a as a lever for personal development, as a lever for employability. It's what's driving a lot of mobility. So there is a huge international um, dimension to this. So. Our conception, in, in all three projects, when we're thinking, right, we've got to talk about employability here, um, we're talking about employment, what do we mean by employment skills? And and been working a lot with Elspeth Jones, who many, many of you may know, who has done a lot of work in this territory about linking employability to internationalisation. And you know, we came around that the employment skills, historically, focused on a particular job or industry. So it's, it's, it's um, employability for a job, vocational, career pathways, traditional um, forms of um, employment and linked to accreditation, subject stuff, skills, competencies, all those kinds of things. It was very, very important for us to, to distinguish this. Um, and that's and about demand-led. Many of the topics that you may have talked about in previous sessions here around employment. Um, and we also put there the, this issue around equity. And I think it was something that Anne-Marie was, was, was talking about. Again, we have to be careful about employability in the same ways we have to be careful about internationalisation and international student mobility. Not everyone have, has access to that kind of support or those kinds of experiences. And particularly, and of course, this is the, the shift towards employment to employability. It's about <laughs> equity for non-vocational, multi-vocational programmes. Um, it's about thinking about students. It's the student experience, a, a broader student experience. How can we ensure that there's as much equity in that learning and teaching, learning experience and the broader student experience as possible? which has a particular resonance when you're thinking about international. Again, think about how many students actually participate in international experiences. Employability skills there is a definition which the Higher Education Academy uses, which we used and put centrally to our studies. And it's about, yes, it's about particular occupations, but it's also about personal development. It's also about the broader, different opportunities, different work, workforce opportunities, but also broader than that, about contribution of graduates more broadly beyond their employment through other activities as well. And again, resonance there with international experience. And again, more generic, more transversal, transversal transferable. And again, this kind of idea of softer skills. Um, the reason behind actually going through this is because we had to present these kind of ideas when we were doing our research, when we were doing surveys or we were talking in, in focus groups or interviews. We needed to know what we were talking about here. And again, this idea of multiple career pathways. And of course, you can then extend that internationally in multiple career pathways in multiple locations. And again, I love this, this quote here, which is one that we've pulled out in one of our reports, which is about 
It's understanding, yes, it's the subject to understand skillful practice of skills, efficacy beliefs, or legitimate self-confidence. And this is where confidence comes in. It's, a, it's again, it's moving beyond knowledge. And it's actually, the, the confidence is a theme that comes up again and again, as you'll see. And reflectiveness or metacognition. It's this kind of idea about critical thinking. Again, thinking about what Anne-Marie was saying, you know, what kind of skills do the students develop um, through institutional employability provision, but also internationally? How does it play out when you start thinking of things in an international context. And again, the graduate attributes. Um, <coughs> we, uh, we hear a lot about sort of competences, etc. And we were very kind of taken with this idea about, you know, what are we talking about? We talk about global citizenship, we talk about citizenship, we talk about global competences um, and graduate attributes. And again, we were thinking, what, what are these? You know, in, at Kingston University, we have a set of graduate attributes Universities do, they're often defined and spoke, they're defined by individual universities. They, they're kind of what is a Kingston graduate, for example. Often they're kind of you know, buried within the website, they're there as a list. Um, but again, it's very, very important for employability, very, very important to look at those to see to what extent they have an international dimension uh, in the back curricular, co curricular, and extracurricular. And you're thinking here about the issues around work placements, for example, overseas experience. And the really, really important part here, again, is that we took out was about can be exhibited before and after graduation. They're not just something that, that's kind of the output of an education. They're, they're constantly um, gained, used, and applied to, from, from, from day one almost. And again, that has a particular relevance for international experience and mobility. And since those skills and attributes and whatever are being developed you know, throughout the programme, and this idea of, of lifelong, um, lifelong career development. And again, this is something that, that's interesting to bear in mind when we look at the type of research that we did, which was actually far longer than Delhi. It was um, a lot of alumni research, for example, looking five to 10 years post-graduation. You know, lifelong career development, the, the career planning, the career development takes place in an iterative way as students go through their lives. And again, we were forced back to this kind of comment which you've probably seen before again, about this debate about what's a university education for. Employ the debates around employability and employment are there. And of course then, when you add on an LA of internationalization, it becomes even more interesting there about what's the purpose of higher education? Is it to, to provide the experience overseas? Bearing in mind, many won't um, have the opportunity for overseas experience. Then how does that play out? How do they, how do they gain the employability benefits if they're not mobile? And again, and contributing to civil society. Again, it's, it's not just about the labour market. And we talked, yeah, about skills, and I think that in our report we put this interesting table, yes, what are the sought after skills by employers? This is the Prospects website, which is on there. And of course, sought after skills, which are, you know, are kind of quite dry, but the entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial ones start to get interesting when you start thinking about international, about taking responsibility, thinking creatively coping with uncertainty, challenge. I mean, a lot of those interesting issues start, we start to get very interested in those when you're sort of thinking, okay, well, you have an international experience. These seem to be um, far more relevant. I mean, and then taking it that bit further, I mean, there's an interesting piece here about future work skills. It's about looking at, looking at the crystal ball type dimension to this, and about saying, you know, how is the world changing um, that graduates will be going into? The, and they identified these kind of six drivers of change, some of which are probably very obvious, and some very interesting ones about what computational world about some big data and the data to inform some organisations, not just commercial organisations, but healthcare, for example, about people and patterns of, of um, activities, smart machines, this is the idea about are we actually educating people or developing um, graduates for jobs that won't exist anymore, the idea of, you know, sort of... Uh, all being replaced by, by computers. And again, superstructured organisations, again, about the uh, this is the reality that um, a lot of activity that was once within organisations is actually involves multiple stakeholders and actors all working together on collaborative projects. And of course, the one that we highlighted, the globally connected world, is the reality of globalisation, which has been with us for a while. But again, in the future, it's moved from globalisation to a globally connected world. And again, with these skills as well, which are again very, very interesting in sense making, um, which is really about what can we do that machines can't? No. So, <laughs> if the question is thinking, 
And then there's social intelligence, which is really the kind of emotional insight. It's working with people. Novel and adaptive thinking, again, this is the thinking outside of the box that's created. Cross-cultural competency, again, it's something that, that Anne-Marie mentioned, it's something that comes up again and again and again. Computational thinking, okay, you've got this data, what are you going to do with it? New media, again, around sort of we, where we live in a social media world. Again, transdisciplinarity, which is really interesting, and this is something that does have some connection with um, international um, for an idea. It's about, again, thinking out of your disciplinary box, it's thinking about your outside of your context. So, so being knowledgeable about your own subject or country or, or context, but at the same time having the kind of the ability to go outside that and have conversations and learn from other disciplines, you can then move out to different cultures. <coughs> And again, uh, design one cognitive load management, which is a way of saying, gosh, we've got lots of information coming at us. What do we do with it? Um, and virtual collaboration, again, moving across boundaries. So the context of being there, what kind of world? Um, I mean, bear in mind that we've done a lot of alumni research. What kind of world will um, graduates be going into in the future? And of course, this was written in 2011. Um, you know, we're four, four years down the line, the list it seems to make sense, but perhaps there are things there which, again, haven't even been thought about at that time. And I just wanted to put on the final bit of this session, which is an interesting, you may have seen this, is Vicky Gurman in Glasgow did a student research project about this topic of graduate attributes, which I found absolutely fascinating. It was, it was five years ago now, but it was really, really interesting. Um, and it was based around the learning and teaching strategy, which, again, <coughs> like many institutions will have, will have a list of graduate attributes. And, and actually got students as researchers to go out and ask students, their fellow students and staff, what do you think are the most important? We've got this list. Um, what are the most important? And they, they ranked them. Um, it was based on an interesting exercise, which wasn't necessarily just, you know, here's a questionnaire. It was actually going talking through and getting them to, to prioritise. And that's the difference between staff on the bench and students there. And it's, some of them are very much the same around communication. But things like independence and critical thinking was very much a staff focus rather than a student focus which again is interesting when you think back to the sense making um, skill there and there are interesting questions there about well to what extent are students understanding the value of that particular and skill set or is it a relative value here but competence motivation communication again thinking internationally thinking about mobility very interesting skills but subject knowledge down here down here decreasing value of subject knowledge in terms of graduate <laughs> attributes. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, but the independence, the kind of self-sufficiency and independence is an interesting one there, because I would have expected that to have been, been higher, um, but nonetheless. And then the, the unloved ones. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that no one really thought, they didn't understand, which is the terminology piece. What do these things mean? What does global citizenship mean? Everyone could have some other idea here, ethically minded, but they seem a bit woolly, they seem a bit difficult to sort of touch and feel. And the ideological side is important. You know, do we want to be entrepreneurs? Do we want to start our own businesses? Um, you know, is that something that we do see as, as something valuable from a university education? Or is that something else? Is, is enterprise education you know, a valuable part of higher education? You know, in that, at that particular time, five years ago, maybe not. And again, inquiry-led learning, I suspect that's sort of something about not really knowing what it means. So, sorry. Well, why do you think um, education is more important today than, uh, not education, entrepreneurship is more important today than it was five years ago? Why, why do I think it's more important? I think, I think that there is a degree to which um, we've, we've got it being more embedded within institutions. And so, there is, in some of the research that we've done, we've got a sense that once it becomes more embedded, once it becomes reiterated that it's important by major stakeholders, whether that be academics or others within careers and employability services, who are articulating the benefits in much the same way as we have with mobility. You know, without this, you are at a disadvantage in your life and labour market. Then there is more engagement. Although I would question the fact that you know, we did an interesting piece of work um, within, within Kingston University about enterprise education. And again, it's like sustainability, it's one of those areas that there is a, a kind of core of engagement with amongst certain types of students, but it has not necessarily gone mainstream. And not special financial impact. The sorry, the the of the of enterprise. Entrepreneurship. 
it's got a financial impact on students themselves in terms of their careers or whilst they're um, doing their I was studies. thinking of like a, a philosophy that's shaping education. Oh, you're, you're thinking in terms of, again, going back to the slide <coughs> there about whether they think it's ideological in the sense. Yes, I mean, I, I think that it depends. I mean, I think with a lot of employability, there is this 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 constant debate about you know what are you creating kind of worker drones for for a kind of neoliberal sort of market system, or you can think of it in terms of you're developing a certain degree of you know, entrepreneurial skill sets. Um, and again, if we go back to the previous slide here, I mean, you know, entrepreneurial entrepreneurial skills. These are you know valuable transferable skills. I mean, if you detach the ideology from this about actually everyone's got to create their own job going forward. Um, it's not necessarily true because we've got the entrepreneurial skills as well. You've got to apply these skills in whatever job you go into, whatever yeah. career, whatever organisation. So you've got to stand back to a degree from the ideology, but I think that you can't, you can't um, underestimate the impact that might have on students uh, in terms of you know, their, their unwillingness, particularly in the modern world, to engage with this kind of agenda. And that's, always a, that's always a very nice shopping list, but I mean, the reality is more and more people seem to be in jobs where they're given no discretion at all. So a certain kind of difference may become a, a kind of important graduate skill. Well, or, or, I mean, again, again, you know, I mean, Kingston University always like says, you know, we are top for graduate startups. I mean, there's an interesting question about whether they fail going down the line, but ultimately <laughs> there seems to be a cohort of, of, of students that are very successful in, in, in using these skills and setting up. So they are creating their own jobs. So there is an opportunity to do that. Obviously, you know, the labour market and the sort of economy will dictate whether they're successful or not. But one would argue that they still have this skill set here, these attributes that they can then use depending on Again, on entrepreneurs, it's, it's, it's a different perspective about different philosophy about whether you think it's you take taking responsibility for your own career, for example, and whether you have the you know sort of skill set to actually set up your own business, for example. I think that's also linked to the, that lifetime career progression that you mentioned yeah. earlier. So yeah. that, you know, you're not that perhaps we need to teach students that they're not going to be fully formed at the end, yeah. you know, when they come up, it's about developing that career once you're in work as well. And, and yes. you will develop autonomy and, and, and gain and of course this is an discretion as you go along. That's interesting. Of course, the universities aren't the only place that these skills are developed. I mean, you know, not everyone goes to university, people do it in the workplace, and that's, that's the idea around like long learning, isn't it? And career learning. So, I mean, we had an interesting conversation with someone about this and saying, well, it's about leading the horse to water and then drinking and sort of saying, you know, but all these things you can do, you can go on enterprise education, you can be mobile, you can go on all these kind of modules about employability. Why don't they do it? And then, you know, actually, you can't force students to engage with that. They may have a very, very focused, whilst they're at university, for a variety of reasons, they, and it's the same with that with mobility, they may have an interest in doing it, but practically, um, it's not possible for them at that time, or you know, particularly around entrepreneurship, for example, Having going through that module may not be something they choose to do at that time, but again, it's a career, it's a life going forward. So, internationalisation. Uh, now, I always assume everyone knows the kind of, again, this is one of these terms people use, but this is the definition, the most recent one by Hans de Beer and Fiona Hunter. I was involved in a, a piece of research for the European Parliament looking at internationalisation in higher education. Focused on Europe, was also a worldwide. Um, Piece. And I, I um, asked with Jones and I did the UK case study. But as part of that, they created this definition, which has been iterated from others, from Jane Knight, for example, and Hansel bit over time. But how many of you have seen definitions like this um, of internationalisation? I always assume that everyone has, but when, when, when Namri was saying, who knows about the international unit, and there's only one or two hands, I thought I would just check. This is trying to articulate, you know, kind of quite a broad concept um, and what it actually means and it's about the intentional process of it's, it's thinking you know what is how can you make something more international in terms of its purpose functions and delivery There's, and so it's, it's all aspects of higher education um, why because it's about it's about quality enhancement it's about <coughs> adding value um, to education research for all students and staff making a meaningful contribution to society i mean it's quite all-encompassing and vague but it's it's useful and it's evolving um, and of course, you can see there, when you're thinking about employability, again, you can see the, the resonance of that. 
to me, I mean, the landscape of international higher education, it's, it's a range of activities. It includes mobility of students, but it also includes other things. It's about looking at the curriculum, for example. It's about research. It's about service learning. It's about volunteering. It's all, all those kind of things. Many stakeholder lenses. Governments think it's about something different to, to individual academics, to students, um, to parents, to employers. Many, many different stakeholder lenses. Sorry, it's a bit of out order. It's influenced by convincing concepts of internationalization and globalization. Very, very interesting. Again, a lot of these skill sets and a lot of the, the focus and when we talk about kind of neoliberalism, for example, um, and the forces of globalization impacting upon you know, universities, systems, students, etc., which is all about um, sort of increasing the amount of interaction, but also about homogenization. It's about something happening to people, countries, etc. Internationalization, on the other hand, being a conflict in the sense it's about the, 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 the kind of how different countries and different ideas come together. It's about between countries. So rather than trying to have sort of the, global, the globalization push to, to have everything the same, it's about recognizing difference. It's, it's highly normative as well. Internationalization is a good thing. Very, very difficult to get people to say, actually, no, we don't want more internationalization. It's, it's highly normative. They may not know what it means in terms of that, that thing, but ultimately it's a good thing, so we should all be on, on the boat. Um, and therefore, it's, it's a focus of public policy and institutional strategies. Most universities will have an international strategy now. Public policy, international higher education is on the agenda, as Anne-Marie knows. Um, but it's all designed for particular purposes. But to, to actually get some sense of what it means, you've got to view it as a process. It's becoming more international, it's more something, it's adding some kind of values. And it's designed to see particular outcomes. What do you want to achieve? Why are you doing it? It's normative, but nonetheless, you've got to interpret it in some way. Whatever stakeholder you are, it's got to mean something. And you've got to measure the impact and gather evidence, all those kinds of things. This is very difficult to see, but um, this was really, really interesting. Um, There's the European Association of International Education, which is um, I don't know how, how many of you know about it, but it's all of those interested in international education across Europe. It's a membership society. And they did a barometer um, asking people in different parts of the European higher education area, which is all that sensible. Um, why does your country want to internationalize? Um, what's, the t what's the top um, five reasons? And here is an interesting it's, it's a contrast between the UK and Europe more broadly. Um, we can speculate why there may be differences here uh, around the not focused on improving the quality of education. Is it because in the UK there's a kind of perception that it's already the best, therefore there's, there's not much further to go? Um, <coughs> more international students is the same for both. But the UK preparing students for a global world, slap bang into you know, this agenda. What are we doing? What's the purpose of, of a university education here? No, and particularly when it, as it relates to internationalisation, it's not about recruiting students, it is, it's important, it's not about labour market demand, so it's not about jobs, it's about preparing students, and it's not about the institution. I mean, this is the perspective of these respondents, but nonetheless, it was, it was very, very striking to me that we were, much we were very, very focused on preparing students for a global world, whatever that may mean. Um, so what do they do within institutions? Well, the European Universities Association said, okay, what do you do to internationalise? You're doing it, you like it, it's great. What are you doing? Well, it's all, you see here, it's mainly about mobility. Mobility is key. We talked about Bologna process, fostering, encouraging, uh, providing evidence about the benefits of mobility, and that's <laughs> what institutions are doing. Um, they're also doing other things as well. But students say the staff exchanges, which is often the silent part of internationalisation, we don't hear much about it. And Marie was talking about how important it was as a lever for mobility. But there it is. Um, and again, degree programmes taught in English, not something necessarily for the UK, but happening a lot um, around the rest of the world. And there's internationalisation at home, which is what we'll talk a little bit about later, which is the non-mobile part of institutional. How many of you have seen this Higher Education Academy internationalisation framework? Again, sat bang in the middle of this, preparing 21st century graduates to live in a contribute responsibly to a global, globally interconnected society. Again, thinking about you know, what do we want our students to be, what attributes do they want to have. 
again, slap bang in the centre about the learning, teaching, student experience. We've got to have global, um, global graduates. What do we mean? Well, all these things here. Uh, fostering inter-inclusivity, intercultural engagement, lots of lots of things there. Um, but that's the, and the idea. This is a framework for institutions to use to think about how they internationalise the learning and teaching and the student experience. So it's not very good. But so it is one say. But what was interesting to me for this was really again, it's about putting this centre stage. And of course, again, thinking about you know employability we're thinking of course yes part of that is preparing our graduates for a globally interconnected society thinking back to that list of um, um, sort of uh, skills key skills future skills global connectedness was there yeah, interesting so the policy context very very interesting um, this was a 2012 um, extract from a speech by the, the former minister David Willits which is really really interesting um, we, we have a, a government higher education, uh, international education policy, which was developed in an in industrial strategy, it's called, um, in June 2013, which is all very much around economic growth and exports. <coughs> international higher education being worth 10.5 billion pounds a year, mainly through international students coming here, their fees, their living expenses, but very, very important to government. What do they mean about um, the UK becoming, in UK higher education becoming more international? It's, it's four things really it's, and it's about institutions and people it's about the first one which is really interesting this was first it's about the increasing presence of international providers in the UK um, how many of you are aware of international providers in the UK and where they might be and what they're doing what that really means is foreign universities recruiting students here um, British, British, British institutions planting roots overseas it's about and having campuses overseas or actually or, or study centres or engaging internationally, teaching students outside the UK. Um, students coming here and of course students going abroad. All these trends are evidence that high education is going global and it's a good thing. Which is really good. Uh, <laughs> students want an experience and accessible students move away from the confines of a single campus. Very interesting. You can see the political pos position there but the point being here that we've got a strong sense of mobility in all of this um, and a strong sense of what the government is thinking about, what international means, which may or may not chime in. So a lot of this was around international, what I would call internationalisation abroad and what was being called by Jane Knight. Well, what that really means is what it says there. It's about movement and it's not just physical, it's, it's, it's the movement of institutions as well as people. So it's about all different types of mobility but also transnational education. Is everyone aware of what a transnational education refers to? Good. And work placements and of course volunteering and service learning. Um, but also this is here about study visits in summer schools, which again I'll talk a little bit about in research, which again is about, it's not just about semester, it, it, you know, it, it's very, very short term, very, very short term mobility is becoming more and more popular. It's something that wasn't captured in the data before, but it is there. It's difficult to dig out with the institutions, but again, it does have these benefits. So, the first piece of research I want to talk about was something we did way back in 2013, which was called International Alumni Perceptions of Study in the UK, which was a very broad piece of work by Biz, who wanted to find out this, um, which is really, it was built around the concept of soft power. It was about beyond the economic benefits, which is the 10.5 billion pounds, what are the benefits does, does, does actually recruiting international students to the UK have on UK society and business, etc.? Very much in the context that we were starting to bring in a policy which was restricting um, post-study work rights. It was actually the, the very strong about sort of net migration figures. It was, what are we going to lose if we have less international students or international students aren't willing to come to us? Um, there was an extra review and 100 qualitative alumni interviews, which is really, really interesting. Five to seven years post-graduation, um, stratified sample across different countries, different subject areas, different types of UK institutions, based on the premise that we know little about what happens to international alumni once they leave. Um, and around the current discourse was based on a narrative around global elites. So at that time, it was all about talent. It was about talent attraction, talent migration. It was about... Um, the, the top talented you know, graduates moving around in, a kind of, um, in, in kind of the highest circles of, of, of business and, and in kind of social institutions. But 
other other alumni were silent. There were a lot of alumni who weren't necessarily going to be what was conceived for the, 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 the great the global talent pool in terms of the highest quality. But it was all about there are many many international students that go to lots of different institutions, and in, even in small private colleges, not just kind of Russell Group institutions. What did we find? We should really benefits map here. Ignore the blue, but in terms of you know what. One side of it was about, okay, what do the international graduates get when they come to this country? This is, again, remember, this is them reflecting back on their experience five or seven, five to seven years down the line. Change, career change or enhancement, so direct employment benefits. English language, which is something that, of course, a lot of international students get in the UK. This idea of cost and policies and intercultural sensitivity came, came through. This wasn't something that we asked. It was, this was based on analysis. It came from the data. It was around you know, this idea of cosmopolitan. It means that I'm an international person now, essentially. I'm not, I don't want to identify myself as coming from a particular country. I feel that going to the UK is maybe a global citizen, essentially. They, they were trying to give some articulation around what that meant. Intercultural sensitivity. I know now how to um, engage with people from different cultures, different backgrounds. Um, it's something, that the, particularly in the, um, the interviews, it was a really interesting the sense to which, it had, at the beginning, it was very, very difficult to have that kind of dialogue. But by studying in the UK, um, I managed to develop that particular set of skills. Personal growth and wider experiences, I became a different person, which is something to expect. And of course, social benefits and networks, I still am keeping contact with those people. Um, some of those I can have contact with for employment reasons, for business, for example but also social benefits. I still have Facebook links or, or whatever. Moving closely on to career benefits, and this was, um, as part of the interview, they were, there was a survey that was done, or a questionnaire, as it were, um, about you know, focusing in about career benefits. Very interesting here. Um, lots of different types of, um, different dimensions of the employability. That's about, it's directly correcting to a job, yes, but Faster progression, yes, but then skills and value. So qualification versus skills, and this is an interesting debate around um, studying internationally about motivations. Is it about the credential, or is it about the skills? Is just getting an overseas degree um, valuable for getting a better job or, or improving your career prospects, or is it about the skills? And it's interesting that skills came in here rather than the qualification, because of course the discourses are always about get a UK degree, that's what we're selling here, are we? We're actually selling something else here. And new ideas for career direction as well, which is really interesting. This is the, you know, I, I opened my mind somewhat. You know, this is the idea about career, lifelong career planning that we were talking about. Personal benefits, which again, you know, these are the kind of softer skills perhaps. More confident, again, this idea about confidence, you know, the self-efficacy idea that came through here. 60% of those very much to engage Internationally, different perception of the UK, this was very much a question of uh, soft power. But I think differently now, 57%. And again, this idea about more confident in making a success. And, so, and again, it's about really reflecting upon some of those attributes that they developed through international study. The second piece of work was what. Um, one that Anne-Marie was talking about, which is the student perspectives. It was the UK student perspectives on the motivations, the impact, the decision-making barriers and support. So it was of 1,588 students um, in 37 UK universities, both pre- and post-mobility. Most of them were post-mobile, most of them were study abroad, most of them were language students, but um, as I said before, a lot of the findings there wasn't much impact of those kind of variables there. There were some, but not as many as we would have thought. It's a very, very inclusive definition of mobility during study, which is work placements, exchange, but also visits. We wanted to capture those short-term mobility options, those one-week study tours, for example, to see whether they had any impact. This review was done by Asford Jones. And we also did focus groups with um, seven universities as well to really unpick some of these findings, um, because we were very, we picked up um, there was very much institutional differences about how institutions approach um, outward mobility and some of whom directly linking it with the employability agenda and the idea around work placements particularly 
um, but also very much using the evidence base around the value of, the, of um, study abroad for career uh, purposes to actually link the two agendas together. So we wanted to, to look to make sure what was happening in different types of universities. Some of those were like that, others were more traditional um, institutions where there was less of a direct link between the two agendas. So when we asked, we asked all the students whether they'd been or not, what, why did you choose um, to be mobile? And again, you can see, I tried to pick some of the ones around careers and employability here. Um, there was a, a strong focus on um, personal development, just the kind of fun side of mobility. You know, I want to do it. It's, interesting. it's an interesting experience. It's about broadening my horizons. And then you start to move down to the skills and general employability. Working abroad, which is a very, very strong um, finding um, in its research, that surprising the amount of uh, respondents or students that thought they, they wanted to actually work abroad in the future. That was a real motivation for them. Given the fact that we know that UK, UK students and UK people are generally not that mobile, it was fascinating to think that the willingness there to, to work abroad, and we were reflecting back on that, thinking, well, is this a recognition that it's, it's more of a, kind of a global labour market now or an international labour market that going forward, students are going to have to engage internationally, may even work internationally. And again, language there as well. Um, UK-specific job, not very important. So there was not necessarily a link made there with international experience will then help, helping to articulate the skills and the experience or whatever, the international experience, the intercultural skills in, with an employer would help to get a UK job. It seemed very much linked to an international uh, job or working abroad or studying abroad further, which is interesting there, particularly in terms of when we're thinking about employability. And again, it's a mixture of the intrinsic and the extrinsic. Um, and again, I said there's very, very little, little um, variation between mobility type, variation, gender, as, as Emily was saying, wasn't a big issue. After those students that had been mobile, which again was the majority, and we're talking around about you know, about 900 or so students here. Um, we're talking about impact here. Okay, so you've been, you've come back, you've had a chance to reflect on the experience. Um, what, are the, what, are, what, what kind, how do you rank these impacts in strong service like with men? And again, this, this idea about working overseas, again, is extremely strong. And again, the interest in further study, which is something that Anne-Marie brought out. And it says yeah, further mobility was strongest among the short-term mobility group, which was a very interesting finding. It was, it was those that, who had only been for a short visit, they thought, actually, I want more of this now. Um, I've had a taster, or uh, I don't feel as though I've had the full experience yet, which is interesting when Anne-Marie was, and we were both saying, you still get the benefits. It raises the interesting question about what's the intensity of that benefit. It may be there, but in fact, you may have more, you may generate more benefits from, from longer periods or multiple periods of international experience. And this idea about academic focus, which Anne-Marie also mentioned, we had a strong sense with this and the, and the focus groups that coming back was a means to, and, and, and engaging more in the degree was a means to an end. If I get a good degree, I would have more options for more mobility, in a sense, when we, when we press around the focus groups. So it wasn't necessarily international experience that makes people more interested in their subject, for example. It's more about wanting to get through their studies successfully to open more doors to themselves and also comparing it with peers in other countries, for example, or those that are also mobile, which again, as um, Anne-Marie was saying, they tend to be more, the more academically successful students. Um, it was again this kind of peer comparison, I've got to do well to, 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 to get ahead, in a sense. Did you have any uh, people who, who went abroad for their employment? Yes, there was work, work placements were included. It was around 20% of the... In, and that's, I mean, we were trying to get that through our sampling process. We, we had a sense of which institutions were stronger in work placement, so we had we made sure that they were included in the 37 universities. But again, a lot of these things weren't dependent on the type of mobility, which is really interesting. Whether you, you would think there would be some nuances, but there was extremely slight differences. Personal development, and again, you can see here that these are stronger. I mean, you go back here, I mean, you're looking at you're looking at the 50s, 30s, and, and, and 40s. Here, you know, you're talking 80 and 70, 68. So the, they're rating these as far stronger about confidence and social networks. These are kind of softer transversal skills here. This is a very interesting one here. 
around re-evaluation in the view of the UK because this is one of the the kind of the um, attributes that is kind of unique to international experience. It gives people a lens back on their own country and their own culture, which is, which very much supports intercultural understanding as well. I would say. Um, and of course, the experience of going overseas does have that. And of course, the mobility as well, independence, you are away from home. Fundamentally, it's understandable there. And self-confidence again, that's coming through about confidence. So the summary of this was that Amory was talking about how well, mobility highlights en enhanced employment sources, but they also support general employability enhancement versus a particular um, career pathway. A third of students report some kind of change in, in career thinking. So, again, what that might be um, is, is worth, worth discussion. Um, but the main benefits are also instant support employability. And this is something that was coming through in the focus groups, particularly, you were asking this question. They were saying, well, they, were, they were articulating these kind of um, transferable and, and transversal skills as a major support that they perceived um, to help them to get a job or in their career, for example. And again, this idea about prospects of working uh, abroad. And the only thing that we really pulled out here was that we didn't necessarily have an answer to why this might be, but it's, it's about the extrinsic motivations, which is about really getting a, getting a job or, or getting a good degree, were more prevalent amongst women, low SEG students. They seem to have a stronger um, link um, to getting some actual tangible benefit rather than the kind of enjoyment, broadly this kind of thing. The final piece, which is the most recent one, which is about transnational education, and I can tell that you're all experts in transnational education, so I don't need to go into detail about this. Um, but this was an interesting piece of work that was done by the Higher Education Academy, um, done for the Higher Education Academy, which was, again, alumni interviews um, of t and &E alumni, which is, who are very, very, very difficult to find. Uh, <laughs> we were supposed to have 100, but we found 66, and we wanted to again keep a stratified sample and make sure that we weren't getting more from certain types of institutions. So we struggled hard to get 66, and we got 66, and we did eight, eight, eight um, sort of case studies, many case studies of institutions who, who were doing interesting things around um, um, employability for students who aren't necessarily located in the UK. Because we thought there were relatively little research on student experience of TNE, its impact, um, all this kind of area, particularly around employability. And, which, and because when you consider that there are 335,000 active students studying for UK qualifications overseas, that's quite important, and there is a research gap there. And employability is part of the curriculum, is a consideration for quality assurance. If the QAA is interested in this topic, are they having a comparable experience overseas? The QAA suggests they should be. Are they? We don't know. Again, because we only managed to get 66 alumni interviews. That's because many institutions don't track their TNE alumni. They don't know what's happening to them. So, in a sense, our data, our data set is very, very, is very kind of patchy and or even non-existent in some cases. Particularly for those students who aren't studying at a branch campus or via distance learning when they're treated as sort of other students. When you're on a collaborative program, for example, it's the partner that holds the data. What did we find? Well, in terms, of, so well, we found very limited evidence in collaborative vision, for example, franchises or flying faculty, because the the partner has significant responsibilities for all of these things. They are responsible for the student experience, for the learning and teaching, for the, the broader environment. Um, there may be guidance from the UK institution, but the direct responsibility on a day-to-day -day basis will be with the partner. Staff will fly in, they'll fly out, or they'll talk about. Um, the program and they'll have regular meetings, but day to day, the students are being taught by partner um, staff. There is some support, there's some support in branch campuses or online provision, uh, specific employability modules which you would have in the UK, um, and the students will have access to particular opportunities um, for links with employers, for example, or you know, CV writing, all those kind of um, co curricular stuff. Not all of it is directly relevant to people who are studying in another country, mainly because many programmes combine this intensive teaching app core hours, so they'll be eat in the evenings, with online self-study, with limited access to career services or links with local employers. There isn't much infrastructure around them, either with the partner institution 
or, or more generally, there isn't much outreach from the UK partner to local employers, for example. T&E is something that's delivered differently to different types of students. Yeah. And that's an interesting quote there that we have there about the reality of a T&E student. You know, they're working, they're going to a class, they're studying assignments, they're following the programme as, as directed by the UK partner, but they're having to fit it around their own life and their own context. The co-curricular stuff often um, gets gets them. It's there, and there was some some in, in the interviews. There was there was some acknowledgement of it, and many much of it was around. It looks interesting, but I just don't have the time to engage. And no one, no one's, no one's telling me to do that really. Then no one's articulating why I should do it really. And again, the other thing to say as well is that in the context that they're operating in, they're they're not getting messages from employers locally that it's important to engage in that. It's very much focused on the credential. Um, linking nicely with student expectations. Motivations for students studying by TNE are largely career or employment focused. They're either positional or transformative, and this is the Pikes and Chapman um, piece there. That they do they are very much focused on getting a job. Not necessarily in their home country but internationally. And studying for an overseas degree is an important vehicle for that. And the UK discourse around soft skills and transferable attributes is less well understood. And it's less well understood because there's no message from external stakeholders, but also at the same time, we didn't get a sense that it was a message that was being pushed by the UK, the UK um, awarding institution at all. The messages that we may think are getting across to UK students are certainly weren't getting through to um, TNA students. They're also mono, often monocultural cohorts with very limited um, opportunity for study abroad, for example, or opportunities to spend any time in a different context, although there are some institutions in the case studies, and I would direct you to those who, are, who do make a special effort to bring students studying on franchise programmes to the UK um, to engage in very short, in, in intensive um, activities, often, often directly work-related and you know, experiential learning projects. Um, which, which are worth looking at, but in general, the message is, is that um, there isn't much of that. But they do recognise the benefits. I mean, that's the one of the, one of the, the good things about doing a, a long interview is that, that you get a sense that often it's about the language uh, that you're using around these kind of things here about soft skills and graduate attributes, which is why I take you back again to words, what were we thinking about when we went to this study. Uh, once you get into a dialogue and a conversation with a student, they do understand a lot of these things. And, and then this, this was a very interesting comment from one of the, the... The UK is very good at this kind of thing. You know, we were, we, it's one of the things that we weren't necessarily buying at the beginning, but we realised that perhaps one of the success factors of UK higher education is this, is this kind of work skills part, is, the, is what they're articulating as employability. So, a, so the point of this has been there's a big missed opportunity to a certain extent for these students, all 335,000 of them. Um, they can. And the final piece here about quality assurance, it is expected to be comparable um, in terms of the QAA. But in practice, this means recognising national variations and motivations of study. We need to really understand that TNE is, is viewed differently in different um, contexts. Employers view international education differently, whether it's a top tier um, degree or a second class degree, you know, transnational education, it works differently. Um, so the reviews need to be nuanced, taking into account the local experiences and norms, and, and that's, that is what happens in practice. But this is idea of an ethical dimension. You know, should, should UK institutions be doing more about providing support, also communicating its value, saying that it is important for you to engage with this. It takes us back to the questions we were asking before about why don't UK students you know, buy into enterprise education? Why don't they, they, they buy into this agenda? Again, there's a real task there to, to convince, to persuade, or to just provide evidence to individuals that they should do it. And again, this is about an equitable study experience. But we are hamstrung by data here. So we, all the things like the NSS, we don't, don't include any students. Um, we know a lot about what students satisfied and student engagement, for example, about UK students. We don't know anything about <coughs> students. We know stuff from the in-country reviews, but of course they are sporadic um, by the QAA. We don't know what's going to happen to those going forward. And student-level data is not collected by ESA. All data on the T&E students is, is aggregated. It's not down at the individualised student level. So 
again, I've done two or three studies trying to collect data about transnational education. Um, and it's very clear that once you get beyond certain types of students, those in branch campuses or distance learning, then the data is very, very poor in, on transnational education from, from, from many institutions. It's often just a list of students. Um, so it's very, very difficult to, to go, for, go, go drill down to the individual and try and find out how, what, how they've experienced. So I want to just finish with just a, a section here about internationalisation at home, I think, which I touched on before. And it takes me back to T&E, and it's, this is Joss Whedon and Elspeth Jones. The point of internationalisation at home is that 90% or more students aren't going to be mobile. They're not going to have international experience. So what do we do about that? What does internationalisation mean for them, particularly in terms of skills and attribute and employability? What, how can we make sure that there's an equitable experience here? Um, it's the non-mobile majority. Um, and it's, a, and, you know, it's about virtual mobility. It's about getting the benefits of mobility, but without actually leaving the home, home campus. Three ways of doing it. You internationalise the curriculum. You make the content more internationally focused, giving more of an international output. Pedagogy more open to different, different types of um, teaching, learning and teaching approaches. You think about international competencies, which are you know, directly employment-related, like languages or international perspectives. And inter intercultural competencies, understanding and tolerance. The reason I mention all of this is because, in reality, transnational education, although it's been seen as, as uh, internationalisation abroad, faces the same challenges as this. The students aren't mobile, they aren't necessarily getting access to support or opportunities that the other students are, and takes us back to the point about equity here. Um, we need to focus on, the, on, on, on internationalisation at home, and I want to finish with just three quotes. Yeah, which one is about saying employment interventions in the curriculum which are designed for home students. It doesn't matter whether they're international students. So these international students came to the UK, they, they're getting valuable um, opportunities and, ex and experiences that the UK students have when they throughout the curriculum, the co-curriculum, the extracurricular. It works. Okay. Those students, whether they stay in the UK, whether they go back to their home countries or go somewhere else, they are extremely valuable. It's the point. UK education provides very valuable experiences there. And mobility, many of those are precisely the generic transferable skills sought by graduate employers. Going back to that list, you can take off pretty much all of those things around uh, there. But again, the challenge is to consider how we might offer similar opportunities for the static majority of students. So if we, if we take it on board that mobility is very, very important, whether it's, whether it's moving to a different country or whether it's UK students going abroad, then what do we do? How, how can we... If they don't have an international experience, and then we're saying that it's extremely valuable to have an experience, and you can develop a certain number of skills and attributes that make you more marketable to employers and it help you with your career and life, then what do we do? We've got to take internationalisation at home seriously. And, you know, at the moment, this is a very, very challenging issue. Thank you. Thank you.